know, what's funny is uh, <clears throat> sometimes you can have a discussion with people, you know, if you have a group of 10 people or whatever, like we do in our small group time, and every single person can get something unique out of the message, sometimes even something the speaker doesn't say just because the Holy Spirit is moving and speaking all the time. So I just encourage you to tune your ear to the Holy Spirit tonight and just ask him what would he have for you tonight. So again, welcome to all of our sixth graders. Welcome back, everybody else. Glad you're here. Um, last week, we talked about Joshua chapter 1, and I just want to review real quick. Um, what do any of you remember about Joshua chapter 1? Anything jump out to you that you still remember from last week? Well, you're on summer mode, so everything might seem a long time ago. What happened in Joshua chapter 1? Anybody remember? All right, I'll help you review here. So in Joshua chapter 1, of course, it's centered on the person of Joshua, right? And he's a veteran and experienced warrior by this time. He is the general or the commander of the armed forces for Israel. And when Moses goes up on the mountain overlooking the promised land, um, he um, passes the torch of leadership off to Joshua. And Moses um, dies up there on the mountain. So Joshua becomes this new leader. And in Joshua chapter 1, there's four times uh, the angel of the Lord appears to him, the archangel Michael, right? And he tells him four times to be strong and very courageous, right? To this new leader, but in a way, he's not really new. He's incredibly experienced. So why tell him four times he's going to, to be strong and very courageous, why do you think God's doing that? Ever have your mom or dad tell you something four times? Yeah, something bad, maybe, sure. Right, what do you need to be strong and courageous for? Yeah, Dylan? Yeah, good. Right, they say you have to say something 21 times before you actually remember it, right, or it becomes a part of you. So, like, in school, you maybe do it a whole bunch of times, so four times, God's really trying to impress this into him. Right? I think the obvious answer he's going to need to be strong and courageous. Right? Otherwise, why would the Lord tell him that so many times? He really wants to get his intention that perhaps the circumstances that he's about to face, the events he's about to come across, are going to make him naturally very fearful instead of naturally super courageous. And so God tells him to be strong and very courageous. Right, something else is going on. The backstory we kind of talked about, you know, Joshua and Caleb are kind of the older uh, two veterans. Everybody else had, had died that were circumcised or of an accountability age. And so you have really this young nation without a lot of wisdom or older experience because the older ones were all fearful and were disobedient. You only have really two that are, again, have a lot of experience as Joshua and Caleb. And but they have been wandering the wilderness for 40 years, paying the price of the other 10 spies, fears and failures. How many of you like to pay the price for somebody else's failure? How many of you like to get in trouble when it's your sibling's fault? How many of you like to be in trouble when somebody else in the class made the teacher mad? Right? We don't like to pay the price when it's our own fault. We really don't like to pay the price when it's somebody else's fault. And yet Joshua and Caleb have been paying the price for 40 years. 
That's a long time to not have a home. That's a long time to wander the wilderness. That's a long time to see all your friends die because they were disobedient. It's a long time to pay the price. And yet God does doing something in them even in that wilderness wanderings. Joshua makes this command later on. He says, put to death. He's kind of implied, it's in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, but he says, put, um, God's implying basically this, put to death your fears. And at the same time, he's telling them four times, be strong and very courageous. Right? He technically tells them to put to death anybody who's disobedient and acts on their fears. But kind of in our setting today, I don't think God would tell us in the New Testament, go and knife somebody in the dark. You know, it's kind of a little mafia style, not exactly Christ-like. But he would tell us to put to death our fears. As we talked about in the New Testament, he tells us multiple times to cast all of our fears and all of our anxiety upon the Lord. Right? We put those to death in prayer. So we're going to start off in Joshua chapter 2 today. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies um, from Shittim. Go over the land, he, go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. So this is very interesting, right? So remember what happened last time. They spent, Moses sends out 12 spies, right? This time, you almost wonder if Joshua would be scared to do the same thing, but he does, and he sends off two spies. Now these two spies have had the, the privilege of seeing everybody older than them die. And so now they're in a leadership position themselves from their disobedience. So they know there's going to be a high price if they're disobedient. They go into the wilderness or into Jericho, excuse me. But it's interesting that the Lord leads them to a house of a prostitute. Think about it. This is Israel now that is setting themselves apart for God. Now it doesn't really give us the explanation of why things worked out that way, but I think it does ask some kind of questions, odd questions, and the text gives us a few hints maybe as to what happened. You know, um, they go into Jericho, okay? First of all, if you don't know, Jericho is their biggest fear, practically. It's the biggest city, okay? There's seven nations they have to go to fight against, right? If you're playing a video game, it's you against seven. The odds are not good, practically. Right? If you're just looking at things at a surface level, their odds are not good. Seven against one. That's not good odds. Okay? So they send spies into Jericho, the very biggest city, because it's also their very first obstacle. It's interesting that they face not only their fears, but they face their most intimidating threat right off the bat. You know, sometimes if the devil can't get you to be fearful of something, he's going to try to intimidate you or bully you. And often he'll do it right off the bat, right at the beginning of the school year, right at the beginning of the sports team. Want to put you in your place. Within his, he wants to try to put you in a place, right, where you're trapped, where you see, where you feel weak, where you feel fearful, where you feel powerless. Here Israel has to face this intimidation of Jericho, the most fortified and biggest city right off the bat. Now, I know a lot of us think Jerusalem maybe is the biggest city, but back then it was super small. So Jericho is, is the dominant city of the day. All right, so normally, you may not know a lot about siege warfare, but I took military history. So normally, 
Joshua and the army have two options, typical options, right? Your typical options are you surround a castle or a fortified city and you call do what they call siege warfare. Who knows what siege warfare is? Eli, what's siege warfare? Yep, starve them out. Any idea how long typically it would take on a well-fortified city like that to starve them out? Good. Typically two years or more. Okay? So, in other words, the nation of Israel, keep in mind, they have to feed a million people, right? So, And they have no home base. Normally when you have a siege warfare over a castle, you have a home base that's sending you tons of supplies. So if they try to starve somebody out, it's not a very good option because they're going to be starving themselves out at the same time, right? Not only would they be surrounding one city at a time, but then they got seven or six other nations and other big cities that could come attack them at any time, right? So not necessarily a great option. The other option typically would be to make a basically full-on assault at the castle and probably doesn't take a rocket scientist if you've ever played even paintball before. If you charge in an open field at a well-fortified position, who has the better advantage? The fortified position. Usually the odds would be about 10 to 1 in casualties if you do something like that. So not a good option either, right? So Joshua sends these two spies in. Now he doesn't know what's going to happen. My assumption, being a military guy, is Joshua's trying to find a third option. Because he knows a full-on assault is not a great option, and to starve them out is not a good option either. Right? So, but it, but Lord's telling him, you know, go take this city. So he sends these two spies over. You know, maybe he's looking for a well they can sneak in. Sometimes the cities would have wells you can sneak in. He might be looking for a trap door or a back door, maybe some dissension, maybe a coup inside the city. He's trying to find some other solution to take out the city, okay, practically. That's probably what Joshua is doing to send these two spies in and also to kind of get a, a lay of the land. What's the, what's the climate like? Because Israel is fearful whether they want to admit it or not even with all the miracles that God has done for them. And so he sends these two spies in to see, well, what's the mentality of our enemies and is there an easy option or an easier option to try and take this city? He hasn't been instructed on how to do it yet. right? And what's interesting is now these two guys are going to be righteous men that he picks to send in because he doesn't want them to come back with a, a fearful report. Okay, so you need to know that Joshua's probably picking the two people he trusts the most, which means they have incredible character, which also means they're not going to run right to the prostitute's house right off the bat. So the fact that they end up with a pros- at the prostitute's house means their inspection does not go very well. And the fact that the, the we see that we'll see later in the text that the the nation or the the city of Jericho knows the men are at Rahab's house means they caught on to these spies. These spies were going around the city trying to find somebody friendly and they couldn't find anybody friendly and they end up sort of in desperation, if you would, by God's divine providence at this prostitute Rahab's house. Now the text doesn't necessarily say that, but it certainly implies and common sense would apply that's kind of how they ended up most likely anyways at Rahab's house because Jericho knew that she had housed them. And so the soldiers show up at our house to execute these spies. All right, we're going to pick up the story here. It's in chapter 2, verse 2 through 7. It says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. 
So the king of Jericho sent his messengers to Rahab. Again, he knows that that's where they are. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out our whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So it was very common in those days they would put basically straw, like hay straw, over the roof along with dirt and thatch and stuff, and that's what you would use to seal your, your roof from rain. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. All right, so question for you. Rahab lies. She's housing the men at the very moment. And so I'm not going to necessarily answer the question, but I'm going to ask a hard question that sometimes comes up in conversations. Do you think it's ever okay to lie? in particular, to save a life. So there's certainly examples out in history. I just encourage you to think about it. You can talk to your parents about it. We see the Ten Commandments. They tell us, do not lie. Right? God tells us, do not lie. Here he doesn't actually say, um, he doesn't correct Rahab. He doesn't condone it either. And the Indians of rewarding her. But it's kind of a tough question. You know, is there ever a situation maybe where it would be okay? Worth the discussion with your parents. Chapter 2, verse 8, continues. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So again, the spies come back, and they give this positive report to Joshua. We have heard how the Lord or Rahab, sorry, is saying this. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and that you, what you did to uh, Sihon and Og, there are a couple of kings they had to fight earlier, and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and on the earth below. All right, so Rahab gives them this report. Everyone here is absolutely terrified. That's interesting because Jericho has every practical advantage. They have all their allies. They're in an entrenched position. They're not in danger for years to come in any practical sense. Right? They know they can't be starved out. Basically, their allies will come to their aid first. They can't be attacked in any reasonable manner without really just giving it to the enemy. But they're incredibly fearful because they know of the miracles of God. And God changes the story, and he alone changes the story. And he melts everyone with fear. He knows they can't be beaten, and so their morale just absolutely tanks Again, Joshua 1.18, it implies that we are to put to death our fears. Right? You know, it's interesting when you enter into a conflict, it doesn't matter if it's a military engagement or a conflict, right? You've been in the military before, you get you trained for it. It doesn't matter if you're in a conversation with a friend, with a spouse, with an enemy. 
every time you enter into some kind of conflict, whether it's a verbal engagement, um, whether it's a physical engagement of some kind, there are fears under the surface. Right? There's always fears in every conflict. Philippians 4, 6-7 again reminds us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and by petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right. So again, we surrender our anxiety, we surrender our fears, we surrender our concerns in prayer. That is how we overcome. You can't just muscle up and just be like, ah, I'll get over it. You know, toughen up. If it's a deep-seated fear, because some of our fears are kind of well-founded, right? Jericho had well-founded fears that God had done miraculous things, and they had well-founded fears to be fearful of Israel. Israel, on the other hand, had well-founded fears to be fearful of Jericho and all of her allies, right? But the Lord tells them to put your death, your fears, and to be strong and courageous instead. Now, when we're in a a conversation, a normal situation, you might be fearful in conflict, maybe with your parents, that you're fearful you might be found out for something you shouldn't have done. You might be fearful in a a conversation with a friend that maybe you did something wrong and you're afraid how they're going to react. Right? You might be fearful in a conversation that you're not really sure who's right or wrong, but you're afraid they might get angry because they have a different perspective than you do. Or that they might be hurt. You might be afraid that you're going to get angry and overreact, not be able to control your emotions or hurt. You might be afraid that you'll be misunderstood. You might be afraid that you're going to hurt your friendship. Right? So every conversation that we have, understand, it's okay to understand, there is some kind of fearful thing in every conversation going on under the surface. But the Lord tells us to surrender our fears and our anxieties and we can cast them upon him and we can have a peace that passes understanding. Right? And if you're in a conflict, especially a conversation, do you think it's more likely the conversation is going to go well if you're all ramped up and really anxious or if you're calm? Why, if your spirit is at peace rather than your spirit being full of anger, is the conversation probably going to go better? I mean, do we not pick up on each other's tone? When we talk? Do we not pick up on each other's body language when we talk? And I was reading something recently that 80% of communication is body language, 10% tone, 10% words, according to psychologists, anyways. So all of those things are important, right? If if you're about ready to explode because you're angry or frustrated, they're gonna pick up on it. Right? And it makes it unsafe to have a conversation, really because you can't rationally get to a healthy position. So again, just an example. um, But be aware that when you're in conflict with somebody, whether you feel like it's going really well, which it might, or it's going really poorly, often fears are what's driving conflict or an underlying thing under the surface. And for you on your own part, you want to make sure you cast all your fears and your anxieties on Jesus. Trust him with it. They don't have to project it on the other person. So again, Jericho has some well-founded fears, right? So does Israel. They both have well-founded fears from their different perspectives. And Rahab just makes this acknowledgement. Listen, the difference is we both have fears, but God of heaven is on your side. She just says, blessed is the peacemaker, 
So if you're in a conflict, Jesus is always on the side of the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Joshua chapter 1, verse 12. It continues and it says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Okay, this is uh, Rahab talking again. For I have shown kindness to you. She's talking to the two spies. Give me a sure sign. Right? She's protected these guys' lives. She's risked her neck for them. Uh, that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down out of the city, her house was attached to the city wall, down by a rope through the window, for the house she, <clears throat> she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother and your brothers and your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on your own heads. We will not be responsible for, as for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will release, be released from this oath you made. Right? What are you willing to stand up for? If somebody tells you that, you know, the Bible isn't true, are you willing to tell them what you know about the accuracy of the Bible? Where it comes from? That's the most researched, backed up book in the world? So just a question, what are you willing to stand up for? What's worth standing up for you? And do people know that your allegiance is with Jesus Christ if you're a follower of Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your goodness in our lives. Lord, I thank you that uh, you have a plan and purpose for each one of us. Lord, whenever we are faced with these opportunities of conflict, whether we... <laughs> feel like it's just kind of thrown at us, whether it's circumstantial, Lord, whether maybe we are brave enough to raise our hand ever so slightly and stand up for you, Lord Jesus, there is fear. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give each of us the courage to not be fearful or to be at peace and to just make an allegiant stand with you, Lord, knowing that the God of heaven is on our side and we can have a peace that passes understanding and trust you with any and every outcome. Lord, bless each of these students tonight. Lord, I pray that uh, if they're meant to go to camp this coming summer, that you would put it upon their hearts to come. Lord Jesus, that they would have a week of time, just a sacred week of time devoted to you and be able to hear from you and to be recharged for this year ahead. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.